0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Well, it's good to be back here at uh, Fountain of Life. Um, I just love the testimony time. Thank you, Julia, for sharing your story. It's it's just wonderful. And I've been at Fountain of Life enough times where I get a... I, I can taste the culture of Found of Life, and I can echo some of the things that Julia mentioned. Like, I come here and I really sense the people here love God, love one another. There's such passion and enthusiasm for the gospel, and so that encourages me. And uh, I forgot to mention even uh, last week how even listening to Chris's testimony, it was just so wonderful to see Christ exalted, you know, um, in, in our lives and in our stories. So it's, just, it's been such a blessing. And that testimony idea—I think I'm going to steal that. I'm going to take that to my church. I think we're going to implement that. Yeah, I don't know how much our members will be looking forward to getting up in front of people and sharing, but uh, it, it's worth doing. It's worth doing, and uh, just just so encouraging. Um, anyways, we're in the Book of Colossians. We just read really a magnificent portion uh, of Scripture. Um, And so God has a lot for us uh, today. Um, As we come and as we worship today, we all know that there's a lot of hot-button issues, right, in in our country and in our culture that's uh, deeply dividing a a lot of people, and you're probably feeling that at work as well, Um, probably even among family members and, and even friends, and especially the last two, three years or so. And we're all kind of watching, and we're all kind of worried where things are going to go. But in some sense, there is nothing new under the sun. Um, If I may share a little church history, I'm a church history guy. Um, In the fourth century of ancient Rome, the same things were happening. There were big divisive issues that were threatening the peace of the empire. Um, Yes, there were also protests going on uh, in the streets in the marketplaces, um, there were people being shouted down, literally. There were people being canceled. All all of the same things. Um, Now, what was the big drama back then in, in the fourth century of ancient Rome? What's interesting is it wasn't politics. It was theology, and it was about who Jesus was. Was he divine? Or was he just human? Was he the creator? Or was he a creature? And I think it's hard for us to imagine people shouting out theological refrains in the streets, right? But that's literally what they were doing. There were people shouting, there was when he was not, and, and, and shouting that passionately. Um, now, what were they saying? There was when he was not. They're saying there was a time when Jesus was not, when he did not exist. And so there was a group of people challenging uh, his divinity, his eternality. And and, and so it's interesting how at that time, politics wasn't uh, people's great passion, but it it was theology. So interesting. And I think in some ways we've kind of swung the other way around where... um, Politics is, you know, all that we talk about, and theology kind of draws a yawn from people. You know, oh, we're going to talk theology that, you know, no one really has an interest in theology. Um, but back then, boy, they, it was something that was debated debated, and discussed. And this passage that we just read was one of the most discussed and debated passages of Scripture. This has a rich history, what we just read. Um, this is one of the most written about passages in the scriptures. Um, so, you know, when I was preparing for this, I'm like, dude, I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> this is good stuff. We need to understand what's going on here. Now, I, I just want to give you guys a little bit of context and flow here. If you can remember last week and, and, and last week's message, um, Paul said that we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, the son whom he loves. And as we get into this passage here, Paul, he goes into who this son is. Who is this Jesus? And, and as he's doing that, he is, as he, said, as he mentioned before, he is increasing in us the knowledge of God. He says, you want to know who God is? Well, let me take you there. And then he takes us to Jesus. That's what he's doing. And us knowing God and knowing Jesus, that's such an important piece of discipleship, whether you realize it or not. Discipleship is not just disciplines and practices and patterns and things like that, and it is those things, but it also involves increasing in our knowledge of God. And so we need, we need to kind of slow down here and say, what, what does God have to say to me he- here? so that I might follow Jesus better and more faithfully. How am I supposed to understand God? And Paul says, understand Jesus, understand uh, his son. And so in this passage, we have rich theology. We, We are basically being taken to the mountaintop of theology, the theological mountain, and there, as we stand there, we're getting a beautiful, breathtaking, majestic view of Christ You ever read the Gospels and read the Transfiguration? You know, there's the big three, Pete, Peter, um, John and James, and they behold Jesus in this transfiguration, and you, can't, you read that and you're like, "Dude, I wish I was there. That would have been awesome." Paul takes us there. As a church, as we've read that passage, we are seeing Jesus transfigured before our eyes. He's unpacking it for us, and he gives us a transfiguration experience, if you will, as we have read this passage. And when you think about that, you realize how grossly mistaken we are when we reduce or relegate Christ to a life coach or to an accessory in our life. When you read this, you're like, there's no way I can do that today to Jesus, because this this is who he is. And and we're on the mountaintop, and we're beholding the supremacy of Christ. And so, as as we're taking it all in, we got to turn around and go, there's no way I could turn Jesus into, like, this side interest of mine. He's either the king or he's not. There's no in between, right? And here, there's really two movements going on to kind of map it out for you. Paul's saying he is the king of creation, and he is also the king of the new creation. That's what Paul is doing here. And when he talks about being the king of the new creation, he says, that includes you and me. And that's part of the good news. Well, let's get into it. In verse 15, he, he um <clears throat> He's talking about who Jesus is. He's starting to introduce Jesus to us. And again, um, verse 15 comes from the previous verses, the beloved son, who is he? Who is this Jesus? And in the beginning, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. He reflects God's likeness. He bears Christ or he, he bears God's likeness. And then if you look at verse 19, Moving forward a little bit, he expands on that idea about what he's talking about. And he says in verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. And then, you know, I think about Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where the author says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is God In the flesh. You know, Jesus said these very profound words. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Whoa. I like how one person put it. Uh, Jesus is God walking on two legs in space and time. Just try to get your mind around that. You want to know what God is like? We don't have to theorize we can look at the person of Jesus in the Gospels and, and be blown away and say, we are seeing God right there. You know, the incarnation is just, it's an amazing thing. Um, in the 21st century, we don't, we don't think about the incarnation too much. Um, one person, two natures and how that all works together. But for a long time in the church, they were just blown away by that. That's all they wanted to talk about because it's that amazing Well, he's the image of the invisible God. And then moving on, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you put those two phrases together, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Paul is driving home that Jesus is the greater Adam. And he is the perfect Adam. And yet, as we think about it, perhaps for some of you, it raises a question. Firstborn, okay, firstborn, was Jesus created by God was he perhaps the first of God's creation? And maybe that's kind of where he stands. And when we think about the term firstborn in our context or in our understanding, it seems to suggest something like that. Maybe Jesus was the first, per- first thing or person that was created. And you know, this was the heart of the drama and the division in the fourth century in the church. Now, when it comes to words and the meaning of words in the Bible, the most important context is the Bible itself. So it's not what this other culture thinks about firstborn, the term firstborn, but what does the Bible say about firstborn? And so that's where we need to start. And in the laws of Deuteronomy, the firstborn had rights or the rights of double the inheritance. The firstborn had rights to a double inheritance. But instead of just going through like all these different passages, I think the most important passage might be Psalm 89, verse 27. And it's speaking about the Messiah. And it says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And that is what is being conveyed about Jesus being the firstborn. Firstborn is this idea of being set apart and distinct and possessing the highest authority. Firstborn, king of kings, Lord of lords. And this concept of firstborn, it's not far from me. Um, I think of my eldest uncle of uh, my dad's side, uh, the firstborn of my dad's siblings. And uh, he did get the bulk of the inheritance from my grandfather, um, to the dismay of some of his siblings. Uh, secondly, he was like a second dad to my dad. When I would see my dad interact with his oldest brother, it, was, it wasn't like brother-brother, it was like father-son. It was, it was very different for me to see that. And, and my uncle, he had that kind of authority uh, over my dad. So he actually is the one, I didn't find this out till later, but he was the one who told my dad to leave Korea to to continue his education. And he was like, if you get educated in America, then when you come back to Korea, you're going to get a great job. And so my uncle urged my dad and told my dad, you need to get more education. So my dad came to America, but his plans got disrupted because he met my mom. And then they got married and they stayed in America. And here I am. Right here. Here I am today. Um, but I, I didn't know that story until later on. And it was like, oh, uncle told you to go to Korea? He, he had that kind of authority over you? My dad, he just kind of followed his, my uncle's orders anyways. But if I can just sum things up, firstborn, you have to get this, firstborn is not addressing Jesus's nature or divinity. That's kind of where we get where we kind of get misled. Not addressing Jesus' nature and divinity, but his position and his rights and his role. And there's nothing that captures Jesus, in some sense, better than this idea of firstborn, because he is the son of God and he's the king. What captures that? Firstborn. He's the firstborn. And to clear up any confusion about Jesus' divinity, I mean, just look at the following verse. For by him, by him... All things were created. Not the first creature. He's the creator. And who gets the credit or title of creator throughout the scriptures? Only one person, God. You know, in the fourth century, I mean, they're dealing with this question. And if if I can kind of convey the issue, you know, if there's a line here and then here's creator here and here's creation here, Where's Jesus? Is he here? Or is he up here? And so that was the issue. And thankfully, they, they, they came to the knowledge of the truth, that he's up here. He is the creator. And this idea of Jesus being God and being the creator, I mean, it's reinforced in uh, six, uh, verse 16 towards the end. And all things were created through him. And it says this, and for him. That's a natural thought. If you're the creator, then you're what? You're the owner. And, the, and that's firstborn rights to, to own the inheritance. Everything is for him because he is the creator. Now it says that by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And it's interesting to think that God's creation is beyond the earthly realm, that there's also this, heavenly realm of angels and the heavenly host. And that could be another sermon, but we won't go into that. But it, it, it kind of opens up your mind to, to God, the creator, and his creation. Now in verse 17, he keeps going here, Paul, just, just so we won't be confused. And he is before all things, before all things. He is eternal, and in him, all things hold together, and you see his divinity being reinforced. G- Jesus sustains all of creation. That's another godlike attribute. I go back to Hebrews 1 3, which says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Who's still in school here? You know, Jesus is behind all of science, math, physics. Chemistry. Some of us we don't even like hearing those words anymore. Like, don't say those words to me. Biology, astronomy. Jesus is behind all of that. You know, I'm not a science guy, but uh, you know, when I was going preparing for this sermon, I was like, I want to learn more about the moon, and 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 the moon is very fascinating. And uh, I I learned just these few interesting facts, like the moon has a gravitational pull. And it has a gravitational pull that affects how fast uh, the Earth rotates. And so it's the Moon that creates the 24-hour day. And if the Moon wasn't there, the Earth might have maybe like a six- to eight-hour day. And can you imagine that, that fluctuation in temperature change? Could creation even handle that? Could we handle that kind of rhythm? I don't think so. But it, because of its gravitational pull, slows down... earth to a 24-hour day. That's so fascinating. And it stabilizes the tilt of the earth so that if it wasn't there, it'd be wobbling all over the place. Can you imagine the Arctic region going down to, like, you know, getting into that place of the equator and then going back and just flipping around and what that would do to all of creation? And then to think, because that's fascinating on its own, but to think, here's Jesus putting it all together and in good order. And Jesus is holding everything together. And that includes us, too. You know, our very breath depends on Jesus. That next breath that you take comes from Jesus. He sustains your heartbeat from the womb to from the time you're conceived till the time he takes you home. He's the one who's sustaining that. And if Jesus turned away just for a moment, just for a moment, everything would just descend into chaos and disorder. He holds all things together. This is is Jesus. And, And that's fascinating when you go to, like, his birth or him when he's 12 years old. The mystery of God that here was Jesus holding all of creation together. Uh, it's just amazing to think about. Now, as we get into verse 18, there's a marked transition going from Jesus being the firstborn of, of all creation to now being firstborn from the dead and to reconcile to himself all things. And so we see this movement from, you've got to follow Paul's train of thought from He's the king over creation to the king over the new creation. And as firstborn from the dead, you know, I mentioned he's the greater Adam. You might say, how so? Is that just a theological term you're just throwing out? How is he the greater Adam? He's the greater Adam because he brings life, not death. And he's overcome death for his new creation. And it says that he is the beginning. He is the Foundation and fountain of the new creation. There's a a parallel that Paul makes. Just as all things were created through him, you remember that phrase? He also says this, and all things were reconciled through him. He's also king of the new creation. And what that means is he's the head of the church. And it's interesting that as he makes that movement into verse 18, and he's now talking about the new creation, what's the first thing he talks about? He talks about the church. The church is at the heart and center of the new creation. The church is not insignificant. The church is precious to God. right? And then he's the head of the church. He has ultimate authority over the church. That means we dare not as a church move away from Christ. We submit to him. He is the owner of the church. He is the ruler of God. The church. And who needs to hear that the most? Pastors. We're not the ones who own the church or rule the church. It's Christ. Yeah. And sometimes sabbaticals are a blessing because it's a reminder of that, right? Your head pastor's gone. Are you pastorless? You know, are you leaderless? Of course not. Because Christ is the head. Of the church, And when it comes to belief and practice in the church, we always have to ask, what does Jesus have to say about this? Now, that's, that seems very obvious, but Christians are not doing that today. When it comes to the church and the belief and practices, they have certain opinions about church. But they're not asking, what does the head of the church have to say about this or about that? And um, just as an example, I think some people, they sometimes take what I'm saying here in a weird and wrong direction. So, okay, Jesus, he's the head of the church. We need to listen to him. But this is what sometimes people do. They pit Jesus up against Apostle Paul as (laughs) if they're opposed to. To one another. It's like, okay, I know Paul said that, but let's go to what Jesus said, right? What does Jesus say in the gospel? Did he even talk about that, you know? And here's Paul, and he's like uh, so influenced by his culture and all this stuff. No, we can't really trust Paul, but let's trust Jesus. And so some people go in that direction, but here's the thing. If, if you were to come to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, what, what do you have to say about the church? What do you have to say about yourself? He would say, uh, listen to my apostles. He would say, listen to Paul, because he's one of my spokesmen, you know? And you know, so there's some people who dismiss the Old Testament, oh, that was such, so long ago, and, you know, there's such a gap between that culture and ours, this and that. If you came to Jesus, Jesus would say, read your Old Testament. That's the word of God. So you see how we do weird things with the Bible? But Jesus is the head. And he'll say, the Old Testament, I was filled with the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I affirm it. And then for the New Testament, he would say, these are the guys that I chose to speak about who I am and what I have done. Peter, John, Paul. And all the others. And so when it comes to what does Jesus have to say about beliefs and practices in the church? We go to our Bibles. Old and New Testament. In this new creation, God is reconciled in all things. And again, it's on a cosmic scale. The beginning of verse 20. But we have to notice this. That as we keep reading, and as we get to the end of verse 20, we should recognize that things take a strange and stunning turn. So you're reading it. Here's Christ. He's way up here. He's the firstborn of creation and new creation. Through him to reconcile all things, whether whether on earth or in heaven. And you're like, yes, making peace, yes. And then it says this. By the blood of his cross. Now imagine if, if that's the first time you're reading that. You should be going, what? By the blood of his cross? Here's Jesus way up here. He is God. And then he dies? And then he, he dies by crucifixion? We have to recognize how strange that is. That's a strange turn. Turn. That's something that no one expected. It doesn't make sense. We should be saying to ourselves, that shouldn't follow. The creator killed by his creation, that, that shouldn't follow. Heavenly glory and honor way up here to earthly disgrace and death, and death by crucifixion. Crucifixion was not just to kill a man. It was to demean a man while you're killing him, dehumanizing him, degrading him. That's what crucifixion was. Follow that gospel story. It's it's so strange. We, we, we We should all be shocked at the end of verse 20, all the time. What, by the blood of his cross? Verses 19 and 20 don't match up. They shouldn't match up to us. And if this stuff is true, and it is true, it's the scandal of the universe. It's the most horrible thing that happened in history. It's the Jeez. most upsetting injustice in world history. Our church, we've been ministering to uh, uh, Afghan refugees. You know, they're Muslim. By God's grace, I was in we were able to have this kind of conversation about our faith, and uh, we're, we're comparing how, how we think about Jesus. And you know, my Muslim friend, he said, you know, in his limited English that, you know, here, Jesus, when he went to the cross, poof, he went up to heaven. You know, and he was expressing what all Muslims believe, that Jesus was not crucified yet, it appeared as if he was, but he was taken up to heaven. And why was that the case? Because there's no way that a prophet of God can be killed like that. That's their belief. that, That would be scandalous. There's no way. And what's interesting is that Muslims, they don't even believe he's the son of God, but just a prophet. But they can't accept the fact that a prophet would have died like that. And that's for a prophet. And here's Jesus, the son of God. That's what we believe that he died, that's even a much further descent down into death. You know, when we think about the love and the sacrifice of Christ, and we should always be thinking about it, you know, when we think about it, where we tend to go is the cross, right? His suffering and his death, and we're not wrong in doing that. But when we think about who was that person who was hanging on the cross, When we think about verses 15 through 17, this is the person who is hanging on the cross. All of a sudden, Christ's love and sacrifice is incomprehensible. Right? It's it's unfathomable. Not only the fact that here's this man being nailed to the cross, being degraded by men, but this is the Son of God. This is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. That's the person who's hanging on the cross for us. And when we think about that, the wonder of Christ comes upon us and it overwhelms us. You know, to give you an example, You know, if one of us goes to the local soup kitchen and we help out, that's not a big deal, right? It's not really a big deal to, you know, all those who are watching. But what happens when a celebrity or an athlete goes to a local soup kitchen to 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 help out? It's like news, right? It's news. Can you believe that this person who's so rich and so powerful and so talented, and so busy doing important things. And here this person is in a local soup kitchen and helping. Wow. I can't even believe it. It's like a spectacle for everyone. And they're so like moved by that. Right. If Elon Musk went to the soup kitchen, we'd be like, Oh my goodness. Look at this man. He's so full of love and compassion. Think about Christ. Think about the cross through the lens of verses 15 through 17. Who is this man who went to the cross for me? This is nothing less than God. It's the blood of God that saved me. You know, so we're given this big, wonderful, and strange picture of what God has done in Christ. It takes this this crazy turn that we would have never expected, especially if we heard it on the first time. And then, it, as Paul's speaking, things get very narrow and personal. So making peace by the blood of his cross and thinking on a cosmic scale, and then he goes, and you, and he's talking to every one of us, and you were included in this strange and stunning story. And the story gets even stranger because he says what? And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You. You know, for those of us who have pride, this bruises our ego big time. You evil people. And you. And, and what you got to understand is, G- here, Jesus, the Son of God, he descends out of the heights of heaven. And he, di- he doesn't die for decent, okay people. He dies for horrible people. He dies for evil people. The story just gets stranger and stranger. And for anyone who is outside of Christ, yes. That's where we all stand before God hostile, rebellious, evil before God. And so here's Jesus. Just when you think he can't go any lower, he keeps going lower because his love is so great. We, we can't even understand it. And he goes lower and lower to do what? To reconcile us to God. And can we take mental notes here? Reconciliation requires death to self and love for sinners. Remember that as you're facing broken relationships. How, does, how do those get mended? It's not easy, but it's making a Jesus move. Death to self and love for sinners. And you get a sense that Paul is like, Don't ever forget the cost of your reconciliation. Because he says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. I think we're saying that we've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Christ's death is what reconciles us. God wasn't at liberty to take a wand and go, well, you're forgiven. All right, be free. You're forgiven. His son had to go to the cross and pay the penalty and die your death and bear your sin. The son of God. And when he did that, what does Paul say? He made us holy and blameless and beautiful. And last week, we talked about the fact that we've been qualified to enter into the kingdom. And and here in this passage, it's saying how that was done by his death, by his blood on the cross. And when we think about that, on one end, it humbles us, but I hope what it does is it opens up how much the Lord loves you. We're going around living our lives, letting the lies of Satan overtake us. "Ah, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if he's good. You know? And even our sister Julia, just being honest about that struggle, and we all have that struggle at times. But when when we are reminded of the story of the gospel, it is as wonderful as it is strange. Right? And it's like you're a part of this story. And it's it's so amazing. And if if our reconciliation is through Jesus, we hold on to him. And so that's why Paul says, not shifting from the gospel, not moving away from Jesus. Steadfast and stable in Jesus. We cannot afford to move away from Jesus. And Isn't that our instinct if we take to heart all that's been said? Yes, (laughs) I want to be with Jesus. I do not want to shift from that. And Satan is always trying to separate us from Christ. His mission is total separation from Christ, total denial of Christ, total denial of his word, and you walking away from Jesus. And Satan He does that in a lot of ways, and he's so clever. And I can't stand up here and just list off every single way in which Satan does that, but I'm going to name one. I'm going to name one. One way in which he does that today. This is what he does. He has convinced us, even Christians, that the most important issues of our society and of our lives are things like racism, sexuality, and gender that those are the most important things. And then Satan makes the next move and he says, this is how you have to think about these things. And so it's like, think about them culturally, legally, constitutionally, politically. But what's missing is biblically, theologically, according to Christ. Now you put those two things together and all of a sudden you don't need Jesus. When I say, when when I think about those two moves that Satan makes. Think about what it does to a person. These are the most important things. And this is the way I think about them. And Jesus is not in that conversation. He doesn't have a seat at the table. He has no voice. And so he's irrelevant. And all of a sudden, people are walking away from Jesus like, I don't really need him. Because these are the most important issues, and he has nothing to say about them. People lose Christ, they lose their Bible, and they lose their faith. Why am I bringing this up? Because we need a word like this. We need this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Church, we need this, especially today. Saints trying to pull us away. Jesus is irrelevant to what really matters most. And he's saying, are you kidding me? Christ is the king. And he's our savior. And he is the son of God. We are not to shift from him. We are to remain in him. And so there, there, there's something about walking in the faith where it's not just, do you believe in him? But every now and then, there's that check. Do you, do you still believe in him? And then there's that exhortation, continue to believe in him. So brothers and sisters, can we behold Jesus today in, in all his strangeness and wonder and thinking about what he has done for us and who he is and say, I am not shifting from that all the days of my life. I am holding on to that, to the very end. And church, what's our role with one another? That you keep each other in that walk. Say, no, that's this, these issues that the world is saying are most important, they're not. The most important issue is Christ. Staying close to him, staying near, near him, not shifting from the gospel that we have heard. Brother, sister. Let's hold on. Let's keep walking with Jesus. He is amazing. I don't want anything else. And so let's encourage each other in in this. Stable and steadfast in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We need this word. We really do. Christ. Christ is so majestic and glorious. And what he has done is breathtaking and beautiful. And forgive us, Lord, for our unbelief, for our small faith, for having a small Jesus in our lives. Thank you for your word, for opening up who Jesus is, for us to have this kind of transfiguration moment as a church, to get on that mountaintop and to behold Jesus in all his wonder and beauty. Thank you for his love that is so vast and incomprehensible. His love is is such that when we look up into the sky and, and we see that distance, his love is that great. It's as vast as the ocean. And as this has been presented to us in all its glory, give us hands of faith to grab hold of Christ and hold on to him tighter. Oh, that we would walk with him and not shift from him and to stay and remain in him. And I pray that there, that's a shared conviction, that, there's, that brothers and sisters in this church have a mutual interest in one another to remain steadfast in the gospel and to hold on to Jesus. And thank you for our Lord who loves us more than we could ever imagine. Holy Spirit, reveal that to us more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.